Hello, welcome to Stern Chats. I'm Ashley. And I'm Barr. Today, we are excited to host Professor Edward Altman. He's Professor of Finance Emeritus at Stern and Director of the Credit and Fixed Income Research Program at the NYU Solomon Center. Professor Altman first started teaching at Stern in the mid-1970s, and believe it or not, he is still teaching the bankruptcy and restructuring class, which at the time was the only course being taught at a major business school on the subject. He has written two dozen books and more than a hundred articles on finance, economics, and accounting. This is incredible, and not surprisingly, he was named one of the 100 most influential people in finance by the Treasury and Risk Management magazine in 2005. Professor Altman has an international reputation as an expert on corporate bankruptcy, high-yield bonds, and credit risk analysis. He is mostly known for his accumulated work started over 50 years ago on corporate distress prediction models known as the Altman Z-score. You know, Ashley, I just spent a few days working on my final project for Professor Altman's class, waking up and going to sleep with Z-scores to predict the company's probability of default. That's awesome. So what does all this mean? You're probably asking yourselves. How does a financial model that exists over 50 years still show success in predicting bankruptcies? What is the application of the model in today's changing economy? And where is the opportunity for MBA students interested in the financial markets and particularly distressed investing or corporate restructuring and bankruptcy? Keep listening and find out. Yeah, let's dive in. <laughs> It is great to be a student in your class, and it is even greater to have you in our show. So let's dive right in. You have been researching and advising on bankruptcies and restructuring for over 50 years now. How did you decide to devote your professional career to the darkest side of a company's journey? How did it start, and what excites you most about it? Thank you for having me today, and thank you for that question uh, related to my career path on what might be called the dark side of finance. When I was a graduate student at UCLA, I did not have plans to become a uh, scholar and a uh, professor, uh, but I was interested in something that was very important back in the Depression and soon after that. But in the 1960s, when I was a graduate student, most people were doing research on growth theories. But I was fascinated by what you could learn from problems from distress and from bankruptcy. The professor I was working for mentioned to me, My, why don't I look into bankruptcy as a potential topic? And so that started something that I've been with ever since more than 50 years, as you know. At that time, it was really an incredible period, but a challenging one to do research on empirical corporate finance. Indeed, I was very lucky. I was, I believe, in the right place at the right time because at that time, for the first time on college campuses, mainframe computers became available for research in the social sciences, economics, psychology, etc. They were around, but mainly for the physical sciences, medicine and physics, etc. So any empirical work now could be analyzed from a much more rigorous and hopefully 
a more um, predictive manner than was possible before this was the case. The other thing I was lucky about is I had a, um, a mentor uh, that um, introduced me to certain statistical techniques that I could use in my empirical research on bankruptcy prediction. And from that became the Z-score model. You know, it's crazy how you developed this Z-score model back then in 1966, when the circumstances were very different than the tool that we have today. And maybe we can start with explaining in simple words uh, what the Z-model is. Yes, I will try. Um, and it is indeed quite simple. In fact, one of the reasons, Barr, that it is still around today and actually more popular than ever before are three reasons, and one of them, it's a simple formula. The second is, it's still quite accurate, predicting bankruptcy with 80 to 90% accuracy within two years of the event. And third, it's free, and you don't have to pay anything for it, so as a result, people try it, and uh, it has become very popular, not only for academics, but for practitioners. The Z-score model, built upon traditional financial statement analysis, which was around primarily since the beginning of the 20th century, financial ratios, financial statements from rating agencies, companies, analysts, etc. But what I felt then was the predictive power was limited by this one-at-a-time technique, one ratio at a time, and then reaching a conclusion at the end of the day. So instead, we decided to try a multivariate technique, mainly a number of financial indicators analyzed simultaneously. And from that, out came the Z-score equation, which was a measure of financial health of companies based on five indicators. And these indicators measured things like liquidity of a company, profitability, leverage, activity, All combined, you have these five variables from the financial statements of companies. Each one had a weighting or a coefficient. So when you multiply the weight times the variable, sum it all up, you get the Z or Z-score. You don't have to be a statistical guru to apply the model. All you have to do is be able to get the data and then based on what we published in 1968, how to use that result to make a prediction on the financial health of a company. Or today you can just go to Bloomberg and see the <laughs> Z-score as one of their features. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, cool. not only Bloomberg machines, which us, all our students have access to here at Stern, but also all sorts of uh, software programs, Capital IQ, Reuters, DataStream, CompuStat, uh, uh, even a lot more that I probably don't even know about. And the reason it's on the software and available to just about anyone today is because the producers of the software programs understand that people can easily apply it. And so you find it all over the place. Mr. Bloomberg, uh, so to speak, told me that uh, they get more than 5,000 hits a day on oh, the calculation of Z-score. People don't have to calculate it. They simply go to the Bloomberg Z-score page, and out comes the result. And 
uh, it's probably, as I said, the most popular technique for looking at it. Incidentally, not only do credit people look at it, but also investors interested in equity analysis and equity investing. One thing is clear. <laughs> if a firm goes bankrupt, most of the time the equity holder is wiped out. That's true. So yeah. it's also of interest to them as well as somebody making a loan or um, uh, involved in buying a bond or um, some other debt security. I want to take our listeners back to when you were developing during the research process, right? And you were coming up with this model. What was it specifically that you weren't seeing in the research or the data that let you know, okay, there's an opportunity here uh, to have a model um, and and address a, a gap in the market? It had to do with the fact that most credit risk um, work was done on this univariate one measure at a time basis. So if you're an employee or you're an analyst and you look at a number of financial indicators, at the end of the day, you're going to have to make a decision. And the question is, how important is each of the measures that you look at? Mm -hmm. It was a very subjective thing. Some people liked certain measures, other people liked different ones. What I felt was important is to take the uncertainty out of that final decision and make it a function of a model that gives you a score, a bond rating equivalent of that score, and a probability of default. By the way, that probability of default estimation did not actually happen in my research until 1989. Wow. It wasn't there in 68. All you got in 1968 was a score and whether or not the firm looked more like a bankrupt or a non-bankrupt company. It didn't say with what likelihood is it likely to default one, two, three, four, five years uh, from the time you do the analysis. So that leads us, I think, to what we want to shift to next in terms of today's applications of the Z-score, right? And so it seems like as time has gone on, you have also tweaked your model. Um, and I'm really curious in terms of today's economy and all the trends that uh, you see in the credit market and with distressed investing and the high-yield bond market, what are your thoughts about what's happening today and the application of the Z-score? Does it, does it still hold? <laughs> well, uh, we hope it still holds, very much so. Um, with respect to the, the change in the markets and what's different today than what it was when I built that first model. By the way, that first model was based on a relatively small sample of manufacturing firms only. Mm. Over time, it's pretty clear that while manufacturing firms sometimes get into trouble, many other industries like retailing, airlines, energy, yeah. have problems over time. And the question is, how robust is the model? And if it's not robust enough to handle all these different sectors, what models are available for other sectors? So what I found is that the original application was mainly for manufacturing firms. Okay. Um, the Z-score turns out to be pretty robust across all publicly listed industrial firms. It's not appropriate for banks, insurance companies, and the like. 
uh, it wasn't built with data from things like public utilities. So if you want a model that is applicable for other sectors, like retailing, et cetera, you can do two things. One, you can look at the peer group scores and compare it with a firm with the peer group, or you can build a specific model for that sector. Mm. My students, by the way, over the years, have built models for retailers, have built models for airlines. And the most recent one, uh, two years ago, a group of my students built models specifically for oil and gas companies. When the oil and gas industry was in a crisis in 19, 2016, 17, and 18, uh, which, by the way, continued into 2020 when a large number of oil and gas companies went bankrupt, um, particularly during COVID-19. So you can have um, models that are more general, like in general for Z-scores for publicly owned manufacturing companies. I also built a model called Z Double Prime, mm. and that was in 1995, and that was for non-manufacturing companies okay. and also for emerging market companies. So mm. it took the spectrum of the research outside of the U.S., which incidentally, I don't know the exact number, but I would guess there are more than several thousand publications, building models and applying them in different countries, in different sectors. Just about every major country in the world now has some researcher building a Z-score type model for that country. And some of my most recent work focusing on small and medium-sized firms is a global application. So that's been an evolution going from a generalized model to models for specific industries. And also this concept that I mentioned before, which varies over time, a bond rating equivalent. When you calculate a Z-score, originally we had kind of cutoff scores for safe, uh, distressed, and in middle kind of a gray zone. And that's all we had back in 1968. What I found that over the years, the average American company, and probably also outside, has become more risky. And as a result, those original cutoff scores are no longer applicable in today's market. For example, back in 1968, when we published it, any firm with a score below 1.8, when you add up those five uh, variables and their uh, weightings, any score below 1.8 was classified as a distressed company mm -hmm. and likely to go bankrupt. Today, 1.8 is a modestly healthy, but not too healthy firm. Yeah. The average company in the United States today has much more access to debt markets. Mm. There were no junk bonds back then. There were no leveraged loans. There were no non-bank lenders of any consequence. There were very few leveraged buyouts. In other words, the, and this is a generalization for the world, by the way, not only the U.S., we have become a much more debt-oriented economy than we were back in the 60s. And with more debt, there's more financial risk. And that's why, by the way, the markets have developed this high-yield bond market, which didn't exist back in the 60s. Today is about almost $2 trillion in the U.S. and another $1.5 trillion globally. China right now is witnessing an exploding problem in their high-yield market, mainly real estate developers. Uh, having problems. 
But there were none of these markets back then. So that's why a bond rating equivalent, which you can adjust over time, is important. So all you do is you look at the score, and then you look at the average company by bond rating to get a bond rating equivalent. And that changes over time because the average Z-score is much lower today than it was back in the 60s. And therefore, the cutoff score for going bankrupt or not is actually about zero today rather than 1.8. A firm with a score below zero is, in, in my opinion, deep distress. And while we don't know if it's going to go bankrupt, you know, a firm can be a zombie. Right. By the way, some of our new research is in this zombieism on a global basis. But you can be a zombie and continue to exist. It's like the walking dead, you know, among corporations. And there's quite a bit of them out there. So they don't actually go bankrupt. The model may be wrong in predicting bankruptcy, but they certainly are deeply distressed. Right. It's so interesting. There is more financial risk today, but we see less bankruptcies. Well, we see less bankruptcies. That's absolutely correct, particularly in 2021. Hmm. Interestingly, what happened during COVID-19 was remarkable. We went from a benign credit cycle, the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020, and almost overnight in March of 2020, we went into a crisis or, or a highly stressed credit cycle. And the number of bankruptcies and defaults increased dramatically, particularly among large companies, not small and medium-sized companies, which got a lot of government support very quickly. Mm. But the larger companies didn't. And so the default rate, for example, on high-yield bonds went from about 2.5% per year in 2020 to almost 7%. I thought it was even going to go up to 10%, which is a very high amount. So defaults increased dramatically. But as your question implied, in 2021, just the opposite happened. We have almost no defaults, very few bankruptcies. And I think that's a product of several related factors. First, the Federal Reserve and the Congress acted extremely quickly yeah. in March, April, May of 2020. And this provided confidence to the financial markets so that all the crisis that occurred within a month or so evaporated and the markets turned around and the subsidies for all types of companies, airlines, for example, got a lot of direct subsidies. But small and medium-sized firms found that they could get uh, assistance from the government to pay their payrolls or um, direct loans uh, through the um, government system. And this resulted in a dramatic drop in financial distress, which has continued to this day in 2021. Even though the real economy was in terrible shape in 2020, it's now, of course, much better. We have other problems like inflation yeah. and supply chain and um, um, some sectors uh, being highly vulnerable to continuing problems with COVID. But the number of defaults and bankruptcies in 2021 has dropped almost to a record low level. I've never seen such a transition from a highly distressed to a highly benign, highly liquid situation so quickly. The question is, of course, what's going to happen in the future? And we can look to Z-score and other models to say how many firms still look like they're likely to go bankrupt, but for whatever reason they have not in 2021 and may be continuing into 2022. I believe personally that the default rate 
and bankruptcy rate will continue to be at a very low level at least through half of 2022 and maybe the entire year. But after that, all bets are off because one of the remarkable things that happened in COVID is that instead of deleveraging in a crisis, mm -hmm. just the opposite happened. And we have relevered so dramatically that 2020 had the most non-financial corporate debt increase of any year that I've ever seen wow. during a crisis, during a recession. This never happens before. It's usually just the reverse. And so what has happened is that we built up debt already to a high level before COVID. It's continued during COVID. And as long as interest rates remain low and growth rates in the economy remain robust, defaults will probably stay low. But once we have another problem, another catalyst to a recession, for example, I'm predicting that we could have record numbers of defaults and bankruptcies again because of that enormous leverage that has been built up. And one final note, one of the key drivers for where we are in a credit cycle is liquidity in the markets. We are now in and have been for at least a year and a half in an ample liquidity situation. Lots of money for lending, for investing, et cetera. But that could dry up overnight with mm -hmm. the next catalyst of a downturn. So that's why a model which is completely objective, not looking at uh, trends like on liquidity, is very important to keep in mind as a reminder that if things turn around, who is likely to go bankrupt first mm. and second and third? Interesting. And is there anything that people can do as they are, as you were talking, it, it made me realize that there are a lot of companies out there that are zombies that are probably just buying themselves some time with the current environment and Correct. the support, right, from the from the government and our institutions. Is there anything as, you know, blooming executives, if we're ever faced with this problem going forward, that, you know, we should be doing in these periods where yeah. we do buy ourselves some time? It's, it's interesting you point out, what can management do when things are either good or not so good? And, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that I've learned over the years, at least to me, that we as, in, as human beings are kind of myopic about our own problems. And we are more optimist in most cases than maybe we should be. So it's important to have an objective tool to look at yourself in the mirror objectively mm. and ask, how healthy are we really? take uh, um, um, an inventory of our strengths and weaknesses. And this is where the Z-score model could help. Let me give you a, a, a prime example of that. Yeah. Over the years, one of the applications that I found to the Z-score model is how management itself of a company could use it to manage a financial turnaround. And it was, this, this was hit home to me by a kind of case study that I was involved in directly 
The name of the company was called GTI Corp. And it was in the early 1970s that this company, which was a high-flying new issue company on the stock market, got into trouble and was running out of money and perhaps was likely to go bankrupt. They brought in a new manager who was on the board of directors of this company to try to turn around the company. Mm. Unbeknownst to anyone else, he had been familiar with the Z-score model. And unbeknownst to anyone except for his wife, he started calculating Z-scores for his own firm, the firm that he now was the C new CEO for. And what he decided to do, which resonated with me later on, but I didn't have any direct role in it at that point, right. was calculate the current Z-score and its trend, which, by the way, showed that the firm was likely to go bankrupt. And he asked the question, what can I do as a manager to reverse that prediction hmm. and hopefully point that we are going to be a healthy company? And so every change that he and his staff uh, organized, which are many of the traditional ones, uh, uh, try to conserve cash, sell assets that are not productive, reduce workforce that are not productive, invest in new projects that are, and hopefully raise the stock price of the company. By the way, the stock price, market value of equity to total liabilities is one of those five variables. Gotcha. Uh, and that, what he said, today, what do I have to do to raise my stock price? What do I have to do perhaps to lower my debt? And every decision that he made over the next three or four years he simulated the impact on the Z-score before he made that decision. So it was like a tool to combine with, you know, good common business sense. But he said, I'm not going to do any of these things unless it improves the Z-score and hopefully moves us into the safe zone. And it worked. Mm -hmm. It worked so beautifully that his company was featured in an article in a, a magazine called INC, Inc., as to this remarkable turnaround and how he used an academic model to assist him in that turnaround. For me, that was a lesson I had never thought about. Mm. By the way, I invited him several times to my classes here at Stern. Nice. And it's one thing to listen to me, hopefully, and believe <laughs> me, and uh, maybe be turned on by uh, this application. It's another thing to hear it from the horse's mouth, yeah, which was... His, Mr. LaFleur, his name was, and when he told the story, the students were mesmerized because, you know, it was very important. And by, by the way, this is not just Stern. This case study now is, you know, being taught at Harvard and other places, which we wrote up, uh, as a tool for financial turnaround. So it's one of the great applications that, you know, I learned about, not by my own research, but by having someone apply it, you know, in a hopefully uh, very positive way. That's so interesting. You know, Professor Altman, you've been a professor for finance at Stern for 54 years now. I can't get another job, so uh, <laughs> I'm still here. I think you can get many more jobs, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not worried. 
And you also chaired the MBA program for 12 years, right? That's correct. I would love to hear your perspective on how, what were the fundamental changes during these 54 years when it comes to the credit market curriculum at Stern? What changes did you see also when it comes to career paths that interested students are taking uh, in this field? Yeah, well, the career path of students is very uh, important, um, and it has evolved, uh, as you were saying. Uh, for one thing, when I uh, was a, a young professor here um, in 1967, when I started at, it wasn't called Stern at the time, it's called the Graduate School of Business. Um, at that time, um, you know, jobs in corporate America were coveted by our students. You know, to be in the finance department at General Motors or in General Electric or in, um, you know, an airline, for example, was quite attractive. Then investment banking and consulting became really uh, important. Stern has always had a great reputation in finance, and as a result, it attracted students from all over the world to, to our campus. And we were located down in Wall Street at that time. We moved up in 1991-92 to Greenwich Village, where we are today. In the mid-1970s, to answer your question more specifically on our curriculum development and evolution here at Stern, in an area that you know, is very close to my heart, in the credit market, in distressed investing, in corporate restructuring, I introduced a course in 1975, I believe it was 75, it might have been uh, another year or two before or after, on bankruptcy and reorganization. This was the first course, as you may have uh, mentioned, that any major business school had in this dark side of finance. Yeah. Yes, there may have been courses in law schools, very technical legal bankruptcy courses, but nothing in business schools. And my vision at that time was not only to start this one course called Bankruptcy and Reorganization, but hopefully bring in other uh, academics or practitioners to teach related courses, which in fact happened. Related courses in corporate restructuring, courses in distressed investing, courses in case studies and high-yield bonds and distressed debt, uh, leadership courses in turnaround. And we developed these courses over time, mainly with the use of adjunct professors. You know, I haven't been able to indoctrinate too many of my fellow academic colleagues to teach in this area, although they do research in this area uh, quite frequently. At any rate, Stern developed a half a dozen different courses, many of them mini courses now, on related subject to what I would call the dark side of finance, because I've always felt you can learn more about how to be a success by analyzing and observing when it didn't work. Absolutely, yes. yes. Yes, you can learn also from great success stories, but those tend to vary depending on what's hot topic is hot and the like. In terms of the student interest, obviously, The more bankruptcies in the system, the more student interest. So my class sizes are much larger when there's lots of bankruptcies. And by the way, I mm. love bankruptcies. I love defaults. <laughs> my wife and I have this tradition of opening up a bottle of fine red wine every time there's a big bankruptcy. <laughs> I'm worried you didn't have enough wine this year. Yeah, not yeah, much drinking no. in the Altman household this year. Uh, whereas last year, 2020, there was lots of opportunities. And in really good years, like 2002, 2009, 2020, the Altman family is drunk all the time <laughs> because we have so many uh, opportunities. But seriously, there's no question that students know how to choose courses. And it has to do with job opportunities, career path, and with 
you know, intellectual interest. And so, you know, when there's lots of bankruptcies and jobs in distressed investing, in corporate turnaround and the like, which, by the way, the turnaround industry can be very large and very dynamic. It's a form of consulting. Mm -hmm but it's specific to corporate renewal and resiliency. Once that's available, students flock to the courses that teach in that area. Mm. I'm actually happy this year that I have 30 plus students in my bankruptcy and reorganization course, even in a downturn, if you will, in bankruptcies. Uh, but you know, during uh, crisis periods, we could have 75, 80 students. And don't forget, this is a second year elective course. And another evolution at Stern, which is quite interesting, is that for whatever reason, and there are many, finance is probably less popular today and other areas like entrepreneurship, like uh, technology, like uh, leadership have increased in interest and importance. And as a result, the number of finance students is, is probably a lot lower than it was 15 years ago, 10 years ago. Mm. That's fine. You know, everything changes. But bankruptcy and reorganization will always be relevant as long as firms get into trouble. And uh, so, um, you know, 54 years, you know, I don't know how many more years I'm going to be teaching here. <laughs> uh, I'm emeritus, so I don't have to teach at all. But I really enjoy the students here. And it ke keeps you young, of course, dealing with younger people. So for me, it's a great um, uh, privilege, actually, now to teach here. And as a student in your class, I can say it's also a privilege for us. Thank you um, very much. Well, Bar <laughs> happens to be a student this year, uh, and um, uh, it's a great, it was a great class. We had our final session today. Oh, yeah. The final session's always bittersweet, I feel yeah. like. Right. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Awesome. So I want to hone in on a point that you talked about with a lot of careers now changing away from the traditional finance into technology or entrepreneurship. So you yourself quickly adjusted to fintech and <laughs> the big data world. You're a, the co-founder of a couple of startups in Europe. And so I wanted to know if you could talk a little bit about what was needed to change the mindset and the tools and adapt to uh, the technology. Well, it's a great question. And I've always said, Ashley, uh, to my wife and to my family and to friends, I don't want to run a company. I don't have to, I don't want to worry about paying the electric bill at the end of the month or secretary salaries or whatever. And so I never formed my own company, although, you know, I was active in consulting. Uh, and then um, I got seduced by a couple <laughs> of individuals and a great experience, really, uh, a lot in life has to do with, you know, what comes to you rather than what you, you think of. Uh, so, for example, in 2016, having um, some relationship to a, an Italian company, a traditional investment advisory company, I was asked to consider building a model for the stock exchange of Italy to help them analyze small and medium-sized firms, which in Italy were able to issue bonds called mini bonds directly to the public. Oh. But there was, they were not very transparent, and, and the investors who might be interested in buying those bonds didn't know much about these small and medium-sized companies, which there are thousands and thousands of them in Italy. And so I asked a, um, an ex-colleague of mine, who is now a practitioner, to work on building this model. And we built a model called uh, Italian uh, SME Z-score model. We then decided to start a company, and it's a fintech company. And the reason why we call it a fintech is that we included, rather in addition to 
traditional financial statement analysis, artificial intelligence techniques. And we look to the cloud as to what information, you said big data, yeah. was available on these companies that was not being incorporated into credit risk models, social media, governance, diversity, et cetera, measures. And we built a new generation credit score model that included traditional and non-traditional, this big data analysis, added macro data, and from that formed a firm called Wiser Funding in 2018, based in London. And it's been a very great experience and quite successful in its few years in existence. And, you know, our objective is very simple. We want to be the global standard for analyzing credit risk of small and medium-sized firms. And we feel that the added technology, I mean, everybody knew about Z-scores by then. Yeah. But that wasn't enough, especially for companies that are more difficult to get good data on. And so we harnessed hopefully, the ability of technology to help us. Uh, it's a modest fintech. There are thousands of others, but mm -hmm. it's very popular now. And, you know, uh, uh, I'm very pleased to be part of that evolution. It's great that you were able to adjust so quickly uh, into the fintech world. Well, I had a lot of help. Uh, <laughs> the, the people I work with said, you know, this makes a lot of sense. We should try it. Great. Professor Altman, maybe we can wrap up with the last question. What is the most significant experience you had during your career in the credit market? Well, that's a tough question to say most, but there's one that <laughs> does stand out. I had been following in my personal research and teaching here at Stern uh, the case of the U.S. automobile industry in the uh, period just prior to the great financial crisis of 2008. And um, I had commented for several years that one of the American icon companies, General Motors, to me looked like a company in distress and did not deserve the bond rating that it got from the major rating agencies, which was at that time triple B. And triple B is the lowest of the investment grade class. Then I was in a conference in Florida, actually, in December of 2008. And I received a phone call from the ranking congressman from the uh, House Finance Committee. And he said, would you be willing to testify to Congress as to whether you think General Motors and Chrysler, which were both in terrible shape at that time, should be bailed out by the U.S. government, or should they not be bailed out? And, and go bankrupt. Uh, and go yeah. bankrupt. And I said, uh, well, what does testimony involve? And they said, well, uh, you have to prepare a testimony. It could be any length, any topic related to uh, this subject, any analysis. Uh, but you have only have five minutes to present it. And then there's Q&A from the House Finance Committee, which was chaired by a very famous congressman at that time, Barney Frank. You may have heard of the Dodd-Frank uh, yeah. legislation. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I might consider that. I've been analyzing uh, these companies. When is the testimony due? And he said, Friday. <laughs> and this was Monday. <laughs> so I said, oh, my goodness, that doesn't leave me much time. So I called up my graduate assistant here at Stern. His name is Abby Gupta, who's still a, a good friend of mine, and he works for a turnaround firm called Huron Consulting. And I said, Abby, uh, calculate the latest Z-score, because I really want to know what does this firm look like, but I know it's in trouble. And sure enough, its Z-score was terrible. It was below zero mm. and had been cascading downward for many years. 
Uh, and that gave me more confidence to propose that GM should not be bailed out, that it would be throwing good money after bad, wow. but instead it should go bankrupt and benefit from the protective code of our bankruptcy system, namely to help it reorganize right. under that protection. Mm -hmm. So I presented that at the testimony, and the Congress didn't like me. They didn't <laughs> like the B word. Well, you had only five minutes. Maybe that's why. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I presented it, and the two main aspects of my analysis was the Z-score analysis, mm -hmm. objectively showing that this firm, I don't care if it's an American icon or not, is likely to go bankrupt, even with another bailout from the government. And two, it needed $50 billion of what's called debtor-in-possession loans, and probably the government was the only one able to do that. So it would have the liquidity to continue operation while it was restructuring. Well, as I said, I was not popular. They didn't want to hear the B word. And, and the House voted one more time for the bailout. But the Senate, unbeknownst to me, rejected the bailout for very different reasons, for conservative reasons, you know, this is a, um, a private company, we shouldn't be bailing out private companies, etc. But George Bush, the last thing he did as president, said, I'm going to bail out Chrysler and GM one more time, and now it's Obama's problem. Oh, boy. And it was. Mm -hmm. And he did a great job. He appointed a committee looking at the uh, uh, automobile industry. They tried, but were unsuccessful in getting new management to restructure the company quickly. And then in June 1st, 2009, about six months after our testimony, uh, I mentioned this to my students, probably the happiest day <laughs> in my professional life. GM filed for bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. Actually, I was drunk for a week. I was going to say, uh, bottles of wine were <laughs> opened. Oh, so many. <laughs> and I'm convinced that GM is a solvent, healthy company today because it went bankrupt. Mm. And by the way, it's not just an automobile company. Every major airline in the United States, with the exception of Southwest, has gone through bankruptcy at least once. Interesting. Restructured, got rid of a lot of debt, restructured their relationship with their labor, and, of course, benefited by increased traffic. But it's so important to understand the benefits. And by the way, GM got $50 billion in loans from the government called debtor-in-possession loans, which gave them the um, pathway to incorporating selling assets, uh, restructuring uh, their operation, introducing new cars, uh, gave them the time and money to do so, which they never would have had if they didn't go bankrupt. And I think that was probably the, the one outstanding experience that mm -hmm. I still remember to this day so vividly, including my wife and I going down to Washington, you know, we're on C-SPAN and whatever, but also um, <laughs> uh, uh, countering some of the other professors there, including one from Columbia, I might add, uh, who said, no, no, they got to be bankrupt. I mean, got to be bailed out. We can't have people losing their jobs during a uh, recession. Right. You know, they have some good reasons, but it wasn't going to work, at right. least in my opinion. Right. It's such a great story, and it's such a great story that demonstrates how you can use the Z-score model to predict. Yeah, uh, their score bankruptcy. was really, really low. Right. 
Thank you so much, Professor Altman. It was a pleasure speaking with you, and we wish you many more successful classes <laughs> and many more bottles of wine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for all the companies that will go bankrupt in the future. <laughs> Professor Altman is here to drink bottles of wine. Thank you very much, Bob and Ashley, yeah, for awesome. your... Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Bye-bye.